We are in Revelation chapter 2, ready for verse 18. We've been looking at the specific messages to each of the churches, uh, thinking about the fact that the Lord is immediately in the presence of all the brethren, so he knows exactly the situation of these churches. He gives specific messages to them that relate to their uh, needs, uh, both for encouragement and for correction. And that it's profitable to read the whole book in light of the perspective of each of these churches. The point was made last night that in a sense, having seven churches pretty much encompasses the range of the experiences of all churches. We relate very much to their situations. And uh, uh, in in many ways, almost every conceivable situation is covered uh, by by these churches and, and the messages that are spoken to them. Uh, I think, you know, we've probably done okay with uh, things through 2.17. Is there any leftover things we need to say uh, before we start into 2.18? Okay. The fourth church is Thyatira. Would somebody read 18 to 29? To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and will give to each one each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, do not, do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Jesus is described by his penetrating vision and by his power to judge and punish. And he tells this church, I know your deeds. Now, what's good about this group? seems their love and their faith and their service to one another has grown. Alright, they're a growing church. They are hard-working They have great faith. They are a loving church. It would almost look to me like they are everything that Ephesus was with the love. You know, when you read verse 19, you think, now we finally found it. Here's the church that every church ought to be like. And what you realize is there can be some very good things about a church and still be a fatal flaw. What was the fatal flaw in this church? Yes, 
they had this woman Jezebel and they tolerated her. That's a stronger verb than verse 14 where Pergamum have uh, some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. This church actively tolerated this stuff. Well, it says in 19, and this could be a, both a positive and a negative, that they had patience. So they had patience while people maybe were weak and were growing, but that patience might have extended also to Jezebel. Yes, although in, in the original there's two words, patience, and this is the one that means perseverance. So I think it's more like the idea they had endurance, right. even in difficult times they kept going. But yeah, you're right, they were, they were improperly uh, patient in the tolerant sense, with Jezebel. And, and, and they, they, were, they were okay with her. Now, I'm assuming that wasn't her real name. Yes, Annie? Well, maybe you're just going to explain my question. Okay, go ahead, now. I was just wondering uh, if Jezebel was an actual person or the representation of all of this going on, the, the immorality that was... So some of that's interpretive. I take it she was a real person. He okay. says that she calls herself a prophetess. That sounds like a personal identification, but I don't think Jezebel was probably her real name. You know, who in their right mind would have named a daughter Jezebel? I think this is how he's describing her. She's like a Jezebel. You know about Jezebel in the Old Testament. What was her claim to fame? Yeah, got Naboth killed. She was a very uh, uh, woman uh, with a mission. Uh, what what had she done that hurt the Israelites so much? Idolatry. Yeah, she introduced pretty much Baal worship into uh, the children of Israel, and so she was just really responsible for for so much, you know, corruption and disintegration of of Israelite faith. And so she's a perfect name for this woman who's promoting idolatry and immorality among the children of God. In that sense, she seems to be saying a lot of the same things that the, the Nicolaitans with the doctrine of Balaam were in the church at Pergamum. Uh, although she almost seems more, uh, I don't know, bent on this. Um, she, she's you know, very, very intent on teaching and leading them astray. She's not just, she's not just uh, you know, got a teaching that permits this. It almost seems to me like she's promoting it. You know, she's actually leading them to do these immoral things. She's a, a, a very wicked woman. Now, I'm, I'm sure, since she called herself a prophetess, she didn't try to represent herself as a wicked woman. You know, she represents herself as a, a spiritual woman. She's a woman of God. You know, she's, she's, a, she's a prophetess. She has a special connection with the Lord. And she knows all these things by her special revelation that, you know, it's, it's okay with God. In fact, he wants you to, you know, make these compromises with the world. And uh, she's got her followers. What does he call her followers? In verse... Uh, yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah, they're the bond servants of, of God. What does he call them in uh, verse 23? Children. Her children. You know, she sort of got her offspring. I, I think that means her spiritual offspring. Um, you know, and and they're just, you know, she's got then people who are who are listening and involved in these same wicked things that she's encouraging them to 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 follow. What kind of punishment does God uh, threaten her with? Sickness or pestilence. Yeah, he's going to throw her on a bed of sickness. Isn't that an appropriate punishment for an immoral woman? She likes the bed so much, he's going to put her there permanently. You know, I think that's the idea. 
and uh, those who commit adultery with her. Uh, and he will, he will kill him with disease. Um, he knows what's going on, and he is very upset with the immorality and wickedness of these brethren. Now, he, he speaks of what she taught in verse 24 as the deep things of Satan. I don't know for sure what that means. I see two possibilities. Is it possible that Jezebel was saying that how can you possibly combat Satan if you've never experienced these sins? You know, that by actually going deep into sin that you gain power over him. That'd be a very convoluted reasoning, but there have been examples of that throughout history. Maybe she was saying, you've got to actually join with them to be able to defeat them. Or maybe she was saying, oh, if you understand the deep things of God, these things are okay. And he's saying they're the deep things of Satan. That's what they're deep in. <laughs> you know, because some people will, will claim that if you understand deeper things, that compromise with sin is really fine. And, and he calls it by its real name. You do see so much emphasis on, on the activity of Satan in these letters. You had, uh, in 8 through 11, you have the synagogue of Satan. In 12 to 17, you have the throne of Satan. Um, and uh, you have where Satan dwells. And now you have, in, in 24, the deep things of Satan. So you see Satan responsible for persecution. You see Satan responsible for some of the pagan religion and also for some of the false religion among brethren. Comments and thoughts as we're going through this. Yes, there they didn't realize how low Satan would go. And when you refer to their children, I'm thinking, you know, she's not just got the adults. She's going all the way to the children. She's going to bring them up from childhood to know those things. And so that's getting pretty low if you're going to do that to kids. Yeah, that, that would be bad. I mean, I've interpreted her children as just her followers, even though they're adults. But man, to corrupt, if, if it is actually corrupting literal children, that's even worse. And, uh, I mean, that's the bad thing about tolerating a Jezebel is just the influence she has on others. I mean, you know, we want to be tolerant and we want to be broad-minded and, you know, all that kind of stuff that's promoted in our world. But do you realize the impact that that has when a church is willing to just, you know, Say, oh, it's fine, you can, you can do these things, you can teach these things, and so forth. You think of the impact that it has, the corruption on other people, Annie. And the other thing is, it isn't always to actually promote. It is just to pretend it's not there. Sure, that's kind of where the church was at. You know, their toleration was sort of winking at this stuff. She was promoting it, and they were permitting it. I've uh, experienced that in... in uh, it is, to me, as deadly as someone who's at just actually, you know, waving a flag and promoting and here, do this, um, by, by just um, being accepting or, or acting as though it's not there or not taking action it's kind on. Of, it's kind of being an accomplice. Sort of. Kind of an enabler. Sort of really. Yeah, exactly. Eric? I don't think much of comment about her uh, being named Jezebel. I think when we define things as they are, we're less likely to be... Excellent point. That's exactly right. We need to call things by their true names and it will wake us up to their real danger. Very good point.
And so, you know, there are some, he starts in verse 24, the rest who need to hold fast. Apparently, you've almost got three groups in Pergamum. You've got Jezebel and her followers. You've got the majority of the group that are tolerating her, but you've got some that aren't. You've got some that are faithful, who who don't approve of what she's teaching. And these, he says, to hold fast and overcome. This is a battle, this is a campaign, but if they'll overcome and keep faithful, they will have authority and they will be blessed with being able to share with the Lord in his rule over the nations. So there's great promise for those who are willing to stick this out and overcome and stand in opposition both to Jezebel and really to the church that's tolerating her. Comments and questions on chapter 2 in this church in Thyatira? Yes. I've got a question for you. You know, it's interesting to me. It says, your deeds of late are greater than at first. So they seem to be doing more things now than they were. But they've got this big problem in there. And, you know, sometimes you see churches suddenly have this huge explosion of growth, but it's based on the wrong thing. Do you think that's, I mean, what's going on here? Or, uh, I'm just curious. I'm not positive that the explosion of growth was based on doing the wrong thing, although you see that sometimes. But either way, though they were growing in some ways, they had a fatal flaw right here that was very severe. We can't real we at least can't rely on growth as a sign that everything's okay. It's not necessarily done. I'm surprised that Jesus didn't say to cast this woman out as Paul said to cast off the man of his father's wife. I think that's the implication. You know, if they're condemned for tolerating her, what should they do? Be intolerant of her. Now, either she changes or she's cast out. Maybe there's those two options. But if they don't tolerate her anymore, she's not allowed to continue promoting and leading these servants astray. Or maybe the Lord takes care of her himself. Well, he, he's going to do that because they weren't. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so the pattern said here, even though the Lord deals with her, I gave her time to repent. Good and point. she did not, she would not. So that's, that, that kind of sets the tone for us and how we do That's an excellent point. I mean, you know, sometimes there, there's this, this balance. You know, we must not tolerate Jezebel. On the other hand, there is need to give people time to repent. You know, you've seen people, certainly like, Thyatira, just, you know, allowing people to do and teach and promote anything they want. You've seen some people who are just impetuous with the moment somebody takes a false step, we're ready to cut them off and that's over with. You know, there is time to allow people uh, to repent. You know, you don't go in the first time Jezebel says something wrong and say, well, we're drawing from you today. (laughs) But you recognize also the danger of, of her influence, and you know when she won't repent, then she does need to be dealt with. I'm trying to, to, to visualize this to some degree, at least in thinking of if I was there at Thyatira. I guess uh, I don't know that I can think of a, a very clear parallel from what maybe we've seen today, and maybe it's just my youthfulness. Is there, is there any kind of? I know we kind of vague as to what exactly she was doing. Is there any kind of parallel you would draw with? Yes, and you know, 
you can see people in churches that really promote uh, immoral things. You know, uh, along that line might be, you know, even I, I knew a woman one time, I didn't know her well, but who was actually quite influential among several churches in encouraging, say, divorce if, you know, if your husband isn't treating you right, encouraging, you know, well, you've just got to commit these sins because, you know, you've got all these problems and, you know, you need to be happy and things like that. I mean, anytime you've got somebody who is encouraging Christians, it's okay to commit sin. It's okay to, to do things that are wrong. And we, there's certainly people who are doing that. There's certainly people who are, are promoting the idea that God's standards don't matter. You know, just do whatever you want. Um, so, that, that's where I'd make the parallel. Yeah, it seems to me also, one of the main problems is this woman's usurping authority that she really doesn't have and having more influence than she should have because she's taken on a position she shouldn't have. Yeah, and yes. I think you see that a lot in denominational churches. I mean, you see that all the time, I think. Yeah, and, and occasionally, unfortunately, among brethren. You can see, actually, a woman who, who, along with her teaching the wrong things, shouldn't really be in the role she's in. That's a good point. What's really interesting to me is, um, after reading these letters, or like such as letter to the Corinthians, you know, if we ourselves were part of these congregations that had these big problems, we just leave. And that's, that's usually, at least what I see, not the case within these letters. <laughs> what if, you, if there was no other congregation for 100 miles around, yeah. would you leave? No, not. <laughs> Split, I think you try. You, you take the ones that are left here in Thyatira that agree with you and you go someplace else rather than solve the problem. Perhaps you see in the New Testament more willingness to confront mm-hmm. and not just run. You know, I, I, that, that may be a difference. I mean, you know, you look at 1 Corinthians. Wow, <laughs> you're right. Man, <laughs> you know, but what did Paul do? You know, he didn't just say, well, that church is unfaithful. I won't bother with them anymore. And he also didn't say, oh, well, they can do whatever they want to. He writes them very purposeful, direct, strong letters correcting their sins. Uh, that's the thing to do. I mean, Jesus Jesus didn't give up on Thyatira, but he tells them exactly what they need to hear. Perhaps we need to be more willing to directly deal with things that are problems. And uh, who knows what might happen if we did that, Eric? And this is my opinion, but perhaps they were a whole lot closer in the congregation than we are today, both physically and maybe perhaps emotionally, because they were always there with each other. But for us, if I see you once a week to withdraw from you or to walk away, really, if I'm not as close as I should be, not that big of a Sure. Good point. Dave? Uh, from observation, uh, dealing with things or lack of dealing with things uh, in the churches. Um, been in situations where there is an issue similar to this to deal with and if you attempt to confront the issue then you're told, well, it's too controversial. You know, We don't want to rile people up, stir things up. So don't talk about it now. And you lay quiet for a, a while and maybe the people move on or the situation changes. And then they say, well, don't bring it up. It's not a problem now. They don't want the truth whether it's there or not. Yeah, Yeah, you certainly see in the New Testament a great deal of 
openness and directness. You know, the truth is the truth, and it needs to be taught, it needs to be promoted. And, uh, you know, sometimes we may be more concerned with people's feelings than we are with actually, you know, here's what's right, here's what God says. Well, let's look at the next one. I'm obviously not covering everything that could be covered, especially in chapters 2 and 3. But I think, you know, at least uh, trying to see the general idea of this is helpful in uh, trying to to move on to to be able to cover more. Look at the next church. Go ahead, Jason. I was just wondering if you saw any significance to what's promised to him that overcomes you. Perhaps. What are you thinking? I, I, I'm not okay. thinking. I'm just okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think there is each time. In this case, perhaps, you know, the idea that the overcomer will gain rule and authority. You know, perhaps the they would be condemned in this church for being too judgmental. And yet, they will receive the authority of judgment. They will receive the Lord. Those who are really faithful gain the very things they're being condemned for doing in this church. Perhaps something like that. So it's kind of hard to know what it means. Like when they say overcome, does that mean you don't succumb to her influence? Or does that mean you overcome as in you cast her out? I, I, don't know. I think overcoming in each case is different. You overcome okay. by doing what the Lord wants you to do in that situation. Here, what, kind of clear what that is here. Well, here, holding fast, you know, not holding this teaching, and I assume from earlier in the uh, letter, not tolerating it. So exactly what they do to not tolerate it, right. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, I assume they would oppose her teaching and would try to help others not to follow it, even though not being a majority in the group, they may not have been able to keep the group from being tolerant, they weren't. That's what I would assume. Okay. Good question. Good, good thought. All right, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, that you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain for about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it in your hand. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. So, look at the situation of this church in Sardis. I, I love what he says in verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now, what does it mean they had a name, that they were alive? It seemed like those who would be on the outside are looking in. Yeah, they saw this as you know, a very strong, vibrant group that was really doing what they needed to do. Exactly. So they've got a reputation for being alive. But of course, Jesus knows the reality. In truth, they were dead. Now, that points out an important distinction that I think we need to make between image and reality. You know, what do we want for this church? Do we want everybody else to speak well of us and to think highly of us? Or do we want to be what the Lord sees 
as good. This church may well have had a candlestick polishing committee. You know, they, they were concerned about making sure they looked good, and so they had a good name. Some churches do. But Jesus is never deceived by our facade. He knows what we're really like. There's so much lesson in that individually for us. I mean, so often people are so concerned, well, what are people going to think? You know, well, well you know, I mean, it's like, you can misbehave as long as other Christians don't see you. But when you're with them, make sure they think highly of you. Make sure you watch your reputation. Well, there's some good to having a good reputation, but so often then we miss the point. Should we have a good reputation because we've just striven to look good? Or should we have the good reputation that comes from being what we ought to be? Here's a church that's got a great name, but the reality is just the opposite. They're in fact dead. Um, they're kind of what you uh, what you think about when Jesus cursed that fig tree. A lot of leaves, but no fruit. The leaves make it look pretty, but there's nothing really that the Lord uh, appreciates about the group. Notice also, this, is, this church is quite different from what he says about the earlier ones. Does he mention any false teaching here? Any persecution here? Isn't that interesting? You know, it looks to me like Satan feels like that Sardis is coming along quite well without his interference. He doesn't need to persecute them and he doesn't need to to bring false doctrine into them. Think about how things would go in the church at Sardis. You know, I suspect this church, things look really good. Things are really orderly. Things are very, um, you know, very impressive. Um... Because, you know, there's nothing really to mess things up. Someone has said, few things are better organized than a graveyard. But there's not much life there. You know, here's a church Satan's not even trying to attack. You know, and so they can look good, but they're not. If you've got a healthy, growing, active church, there will be problems. You're converting people that bring in problems. You know, you're doing things that leads to problems. You think about, I was just teaching the other day, Acts 6, with the uh, problem with the uh, food service for the Hellenistic widows. And, you know, why was that problem caused? Well, one thing, they were growing. If they hadn't been growing, they probably wouldn't have that. They were active. They were actually helping out the widows that needed it. If they hadn't had any program to do that, they probably wouldn't have had a problem. You know, churches that don't do anything, man, everything runs like clockwork. You know, everything's good. Reminds me of one of my favorite Proverbs. I don't know if you've thought about this one uh, recently or not, but Proverbs 14.4 is just really cool. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Tell you what, you want to have a, a clean barn? Don't have any livestock. You know, but of course, how are you going to get any work done on the farm? You know, Sometimes we're concerned with having, you know, the clean stables. You know, we want everything to to look good, to be impressive. You know, um, you don't want things to mess up the order and decorum. Well, there is something more important than the order and decorum. We need life. 
And, and, and when we're growing and active, there's going to be more difficulties. There's going to be more issues. There's going to be more headaches. This church didn't have headaches. They looked good. They were dead. So I think that's something for us to think about. And, and really striving for life, not just looking good. Comments and thoughts about that idea in general about this church? Harry? I thing to realize because you don't want to go to services always having issues and when you don't have issues it's like finally but then you don't realize that if you're sitting back then you're and it just and I think I love the fact that the first thing he says is be watchful because we have to do that constantly yes yes I, I you know it was interesting just a few weeks ago uh, I don't know if you know this person, but I was uh, listening to a talk by uh, a man who's preaching in New York City, Don Bunting. And uh, they've got quite a growing and diverse church there. Uh, people from every continent and people from every level of spiritual maturity. He said, you know, he said every service. You, know, you don't know what's going to be said or what's going to happen. It's a good group. I think they're growing and doing well. He said it's more tense and there's more issues. And there's more that has to be dealt with. People come from various places, various backgrounds. They are, they are having all kinds of evangelistic opportunities like nobody's business. So there's all sorts of people who've never even been to the church before every service. And so you've got things that come up with that. And, you know, it's more stressful. You know, sometimes churches are like, you know, we really don't want anybody coming in. You know, we're good like we are. You know, we all know what to do. Everybody keeps their place. You know, everything runs smoothly. And it is, it's, it's more disruptive if, uh, you know, you, I mean, new converts are going to be more disruptive, especially if they come from, you know, questionable backgrounds, you know, and, and been raised as, you know, good, moral, responsible people, then you're going to have issues. And, you know, you have parents with small children, that's going to be issues. And you have, you know, people that, that may have, you know, personal difficulties in their life, there's going to be issues. And so sometimes it's like, man, let's just keep it us. You know, let's just make sure everybody fits with the program. But, but it's, it's almost sterile in those environments. And, and I think, to me, that's, that's what he's saying about Sardis. Now, there are a few people, <laughs> you know, who are still faithful. There's a few people who, who, are, who are serving the Lord. But the rest of them, he thinks they've soiled their garments because they're dead. They're not living. They're not active. They're not really serving. Um, and if you want the Lord's approval, if you want him to confess your name, then you're going to have to overcome by being alive and active and serving and dealing with the difficulties that that provides. Comments and thoughts about this church in Sardis? It's crazy to see that, that here, as well as maybe in the, the church before that, I guess, in Thyatira, that there were some who overcame. I mean, there were some who even were part of a group that wasn't what the Lord wanted, and yet the Lord recognized that they were what He wanted. You see that the Lord doesn't just judge churches as churches. The Lord knows each one of us. And in some churches who have deficiencies, don't they all, you know, there are, there are people who are doing what's right and who are holding fast and can overcome. And I think that is encouraging to see that. I think it emphasizes our need to have a relationship with Him. Absolutely. Rather than with the church. You know, we, we feel good if we've met every service and we've participated and done whatever, but just being a part of a church. 
church, even as strong as it may be, doesn't mean that you're pleasing to him. You're exactly right. Don? It also says in verse 5 that once we're saved, we're not always saved. Because That's true. People were added to the book of life, and he said, I can block them back out again. You're right. Just yeah. being a member of the church does not guarantee us salvation. Yes, that's exactly right. Good points. Other thoughts? Is that Pastor Proverbs? 14.4. All right. Uh, the Church of Philadelphia, 7 to 13. description of Jesus moves to points that were not already covered in the, his description in chapter 1. Remember that the message about Jesus fits with the message to the church each time, even though we've not always stressed that. And here, Jesus is holy and true, and he's got the key of David. Now, I think the background for that is a passage in Isaiah 22, but just in general, the key of David, David was the great king. God promised he'd have a successor who would establish an everlasting kingdom. Jesus is the one who has the door into, has the key to the door into that kingdom and its blessings. Now, the guy who's got the key controls what? Who comes in. And who goes out. He controls access. He's got the final authority on who's going to be there and who isn't. And that's Jesus. He has the key of David. Now, I'm going to uh, make maybe a little bigger point off of this that I'm about to say than what's necessary, just because I think this gives a good illustration of how not to study the Bible. Uh, and if you disagree with me you know, on anything, you know, I'm not going to be mad at you or anything like that, but I think I can uh, prove my case here. Uh, in verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. Now, let me tell you how I learned this when I was in high school and this revelation was being taught. And how we often do with so many Bible subjects. They came to this point, I put before you an open door. Open door. You know, the phrase open door, what do you read about that in the Bible? And so they jumped to two or three other passages where an open door meant 
a door open to evangelize non-Christians. So open door. Door to evangelize non-Christians. Here's a church that has an opportunity to evangelize. Do you see a problem with that in the context? Seems just like this door's open for them to come in. Exactly. That's a flaw in a Bible study technique. The first thing you do, study it in context. In the context here, the idea of the open door is the door into the kingdom of David that Jesus has the key to. And so Jesus is saying, I've opened the door for you, and none of these uh, persecutors, those that say that are Jews and are, they are Jews and are not, in verse 9, they can't shut the door on you. They don't have the key. And so I've opened the door for you, and nobody can shut it. Now, that's not a critical thing, though that is uh, uh, another way the idea of an open door is used in the Bible. Not all open doors, even outside of this passage, is a door for evangelism. Some of them really do mean the door into the kingdom of God and his blessings, like Acts 14.27 and a passage later on in Revelation 3. Um, but, but what I really want to make the point is, we really need to do have a better method in our Bible study. It, I, I think one of the most common mistakes I see made is that jumping to other verses based on the same word or phrase. You know, our, our Bible study technique, okay, let's look at this word. What is my marginal references? What, where else do they find that word? Go to a concordance. Or, or a lexicon, where else is that word found? Well, over here in this context, that word, and maybe even the whole context refers to this, and we import it back in, in the passage we're looking at. That is not a good first approach when we're studying something. The first approach needs to be, look at it in the context. We would always do that in any other realm. You know, there are plenty of words that mean different things. You're talking about baseball, and you mention a run, and you don't think about ladies' hose, and you don't think about the washing machine. In the context of baseball, a run is a very specific thing, even though run means a lot of other things in other contexts. It would be silly. To, you're talking about baseball, somebody says something about a run, you say, well, I remember a passage over here that talks about running, and it was the car. So it must be talking about a car. You know, we never do that. But we come to Bible study, and we use some reasoning that's not the best. I'm not saying never look at other passages, but I'm saying that first thought of jumping, rather than looking in the context, leads to these kind of mistakes. This is not a critical mistake. It's not going to make a lot of difference what we think, although this makes a much stronger point in the context. The fact is, it doesn't make any difference who tries to shut the door on us if we're faithful to the Lord because Jesus has the key. You know, these guys who say they are Jews and are not, they can't do anything to us, and they can't keep us out. They don't have the key. I'm going to say a couple more things about 8 and 9, but I'll pause if anybody wants to make a... Uh, refutation of that or wants to make a comment 
right, let me make another point about verse 8. He says, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, they were faithful because they kept his word and hadn't denied his name, but they only had a little power. I think that's significant. Are all faithful churches powerful, successful, dynamic, on the march, on the move churches? Not necessarily. We are so, in our culture, focused on success and techniques for success that we're more interested in the impact of a church than its faithfulness. And we come up with our techniques to make sure the church is really dynamic. That's not what matters. This church has little power. It has some, but it's not a real powerful, influential, impactful church. But they're very faithful to God. I don't assume that their little power comes from not working hard. But not every church makes a big splash in its community. I mean, some places are harder soil. And so, we shouldn't mostly be looking, what's the most growing, uh, the most successful, the most prominent church? We need to strive to be faithful, to keep His Word. If we do that, God will put before us the open door. Now, the other thing I wanted to say about these two verses is, in verse 9, this is really cool. These so-called Jews will come and bow down at your feet. I'm not going to go through the details of this. I'll just suggest this, and you can work on it. But there are three verses in Isaiah that have the idea of the Gentiles coming and bowing down at the feet of the Jews in the Messianic Kingdom. Isaiah 44, 14, 45, 14, 45, 14, and 60, 14. That's 45, 14, 49, 23, and 60, 14. That's fulfilled by physical Jews who are really not bowing down at the feet of physical Gentiles that are now God's Jews. So it's an ironic almost reversal of the image from the prophets. God's true Jews today are his people, regardless of their ethnicity. And the true Gentiles today are the unbelievers, regardless of their ethnicity. So that's a really cool play on that figure. But what they need to do is keep on pressing forward, and God will bless them. They will be secure and stable and, and, and be, be permanent in the Lord's house. Comments and thoughts on this letter to Philadelphia? Your comment about God's people today being the true Jews, uh, I think that's exactly right. And we need to keep that in mind as we read in the Gospels how Jesus talked about the Jews because we could fall into the same things that they did. And I think you see some of that in some of these letters, like the Ephesus. You know, the things that they were doing, well, that's what the Jews did. Well, we're the true Jews now and we could fall exactly into the exact same thing that Jesus spent so much time preaching. Yeah, we are in a parallel position so we would face the same temptations. It's a very good point. We need to be sensitive about that. Verse 10. Seems like what Jesus is saying here is, you know, you've already been doing so good in passing the test, I'm going to give you a break from more of that testing. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he will only allow us to be tested to the level he chooses. I want to make one more point. We haven't really pushed this so far, but this is a good spot to stop and mention this. Look at verse 11. I am coming quickly. Now, he's coming quickly here is to, to relieve and bless this church. Look back at 3.3. 3. He says, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. So that would be a coming to punish them if they don't wake up. Look back at 2.16. Therefore, repent or else I'm coming to you quickly. That would be a coming to punish them for having those false teachers. Look at 2.5. He says, you know, remember and repent or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The point that you see in those verses is when it, Jesus talks about, or oh, I'm coming to you, does not necessarily mean what we think of when we think about the second coming. The coming of Jesus is simply his coming in judgment, his coming in blessing. And, and we need to keep that in mind because so often when we read the word coming, we automatically jump to the, what we call the second coming, which is really the final coming. There's plenty of others in between. All right, anything you want to say through 3.13? All right, how about 14 to 22? And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with my father on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Good. Jesus identifies himself here as the Amen, which is kind of an interesting thing. Why would Jesus identify himself with the end of a prayer? Yes. So what does that tell you about Jesus? He's the Alpha and the Omega. Yes. The beginning and the end. Yes. He's one with the power to make it so. Yes. The idea of Amen, meaning verily, truly, so be it, that's the way it is. You see Jesus as firm, as definite as unchanging, which is quite contra- contrast with this church, 
instead of being a man, this church is what? Blah. Blah. That's exactly right. Here's lukewarm. They're indifferent. They are just not, they're wishy-washy. They're, they're, they're not on fire. They're not cold. They're just kind of air. And so Jesus has got a, quite a contrast to them. That's a danger for us. You know, it's so easy for us to be lukewarm, to not really be that focused and fervent. And, and the church has a second problem. They have a, a, a pair of problems that are just practically fatal. Not only are they lukewarm, but what else are they? Prideful. Self-confident. It's bad to be lukewarm and be proud at the same time. There's nothing good, as far as I can see, said about this group. They are just bad. (laughs) Um, They think they are rich and wealthy and don't need anything. And they don't know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, what a contrast. In 15, Jesus says, I know your true condition. In 17, you do not know your true condition. They didn't see themselves properly like Jesus did. And ironically, in verse 18, he encouraged them to buy from him the very things the city of Laodicea prided itself on. The city of Laodicea was a center of banking. They were a very rich city that had refused Roman governmental aid after their city was damaged by an earthquake. They were a rich city. They were a city that was a center of clothing manufacturing. And there was a famous eye salve made in Laodicea. So I think with intended irony, Jesus says, you know you need to buy from me, you know, gold, white garments, and eye salve. You're blind and naked and impoverished and you don't even know it. You think you've got all those things. Wonder what Jesus would say to us. He sees our true condition. Is it possible that we would think we're really good in the very areas where Jesus says you are woefully lacking and you need my blessing and help? And then, in 20, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Now this is another passage that's often taken out of context. But in the first you know, way of of seeing this. What door is Jesus standing at the door and knocking on? The door he opened and no man can shut? I don't think so here. Yes, sort of. And he's saying, our door, maybe a little bit more broadly, I think the door of this congregation. He's knocking to enter into this church. Which side of the door is he on? This is his church, and by their conduct, he's outside knocking for the opportunity to get invited back in. That's a pretty big shock. You know, what if Jesus wrote us a letter today and said, you know, uh, I'm standing on the outside of the door of the church in New Salisbury. I want in. We thought he was. You know, is it possible that he's not? I mean, he writes some pretty shocking things to these people. If they would let him back in by their repentance, they could join in a meal with him. 
and they would be able to even sit down with him on his throne like he overcame and sat down on his father's throne. Um, Which, man, you see so much in Revelation. I won't have time and don't even see all this yet uh, to to comment on all these things. But you see so much the uh, beautiful way in which this book is written. This last overcomer promise flows right into chapter 4 and 5. Because the focal point of chapter 4 and 5 is the throne of God. So the overcomer promise, ending with, I sat down with my father on his throne, just goes right into 4 and 5. And you see that he wrote this with real purpose. But this church, indifferent and proud of it. And he was ready to throw them up. Comments and questions? Yes. Do you think that, that cold and hot are uh, hot being spiritually fervent and cold being spiritually dead? And lukewarm being somewhere in between that? Yeah. I guess the thing that puzzles me about that is Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot. Like, why would Jesus want somebody to be totally spiritually cold, totally wicked? Why, why would he long for that? Great question. I think I've got an answer to that. Who are the hardest people to reach? The ones that have just enough service to God to be proud and self-sufficient and think they don't need anything. You take somebody who's an immoral reprobate, they know they're a mess. They know they need help. But the person who is sort of serving so easily contents themselves with that. That'd be my answer. That this is the most sickening thing. They have just enough religion to be nauseating. They, they put on the front that they're serving God, but really they're they're indifferent. I don't know. Somebody else might have a better Really answer. not being too good of an example to others, how that may influence other people, maybe. Certainly the reason true. Why. If they're being cold and yeah, really not doing anything in his service, they're not going to affect others in a negative way spiritually. That's at least a true statement. You know, atheists don't hurt the name of Christ like so-called Christians do. I guess the image is used here of Jesus seems drinking. And, and he's saying, I, I wish it were cold or hot. And, and you know, we, we know from drinks that either of those is a good thing in the right context. You know, if you have a cold drink, that's just what you want. Or a hot drink, sometimes that's just what you want. But there's almost nothing that's good or warm. And so, it, it, in some ways, it might be a contrast between something that is good and useful and pleasing to Christ versus lukewarm, which isn't. So, so I don't know if cold and hot are really two different things, but the same thing, being useful and good and pleasing to God, and lukewarm being the thing that's not, that he would spit out of his mouth. I suspect at least part of that is the case. It's the image of drinking something lukewarm, and I'm about the only person I know that prefers things that way. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, for most of us, that's sickening. Uh, you know, I don't know about the cold being useful. Maybe. It's an interesting thing to think about. Eric? I was just liking it when I thought about this to the, uh, the salt. The salt loses its flavor. What does it for? If a liquid has no temperature, whether hot or cold, who does it want? Right. Yeah. Good point. There's certainly plenty to think about in these things. And, you know, I appreciate, you know, your comments because obviously what I see is limited by what I see. 
And uh, between us all, we can certainly see a lot more things. And so certainly don't let things that I say uh, become the definitive thing. I'm just trying to uh, throw out some things I can see and stimulate your thinking, but hopefully you can go a lot beyond that. Anything else you want to say through the first three chapters? What's really amazing, contrasting these letters to what we'll see, not even in the next few chapters, it seems like, yeah, they're given these rewards if they overcome, they're given their crowns, but what do they do with these rewards once they get to the throne, well, they throw those crowns at the feet of the one who's really worthy. Amen. Amen. Oh, I just think it's interesting. At the end of every single one of those, he says what Jesus said, he who has an ear to listen, let him hear, which means we have a responsibility to make sure we pay attention. And also he says... Um, to the churches. So sometimes we want to say, oh, he's just talking that church, he's talking that church, but he always, he says to this church, but then he says at the end, I speak to the churches. Excellent point, that's right. And this message is for everyone with ears. Yeah, good point. All right, we are going to take some breaks through this. This will probably be an appropriate time before we get into chapters four and five. So why don't we take, I don't know, a ten minute break, uh, relax, try to, energize ourselves or whatever and uh, we'll come back and uh, work on four and five.